Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on February 25th at around uh, 2.45pm GMT. Today is not the normal type of episode. We're going to have another one of our special episodes today. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Hugo Rosemont and Ross Frenet. Hugo is the Director of Security and Resilience with the ADS Group, and Ross is the co-founder and co-director of Moonshot CVE. Uh, we're going to be talking about the role that the private sector has to play in counterterrorism today. Oftentimes we hear about the role that government, the role that the public sector broadly has to play, but there is a significant role that is being played by the private sector at the moment. So let's have a talk about it. And there's no better people than the two men I've got uh, talking to me here today. Hugo, actually, uh, you did your PhD and wrote on this uh, on this topic on the role that the private sector has. So, in general, what did you find that the most significant areas that the private sector could play in countering terrorism? Well, th thank you, John. I mean, there are there really are multiple roles in the way in which that the private sector contributes to counterterrorism, and I think that's that's a good place to start. I mean, broad, broadly speaking, as I as I would offer it, you've got three main categories. You've got the supply community, which itself is very diverse. You've got uh, the commercial providers of security solutions, whether it's technology, whether it's consultancy, whether it's uh, a whole host of uh, services also. But then you also, crucially, have, have the operators of security. security. Uh, infrastructure operators, critical national infrastructure like energy companies, nuclear companies, all the way through to transport and energy. And you see there also the private sector that have a crucial role to protect their own assets and networks. And I think we should be thinking about them as the private sector. And then the third bucket, as it were, I would say, is that you then have business in the round within the country. So, for example, you have uh, a very active agenda currently with the Lon in London, uh, where we are today, talking with the Met Police who are working with businesses across the city to try and raise resilience and preparedness. So, a very diverse set of stakeholders, and I think it's important in the same way as, as you alluded to, that government sort of organises itself uh, for countering terrorism, we need to think about the, the roles and the different categories that I've just mentioned. And where, for both of you, where do both of your organisations fit in, both ADS Group and Moonshot CV, where do you fit into this overall uh, counter-terrorism space? Well, for my part at the ADS Group, it's a trade association of defence, security and, and aerospace companies. And you know, within that sort of a thousand or so companies as part of the membership, you know, we represent companies that develop, we would say this obviously, some of the most high-tech security solutions actually in the world. And so therefore, the capabilities that are provided to the first responders, the police, um, but also those critical operators that I mentioned, they're the ones who actually supply the capability into the sector to ensure that uh, the sector is protected. Um, all the way through from sort of 
preparedness, through to training, through to uh, those capabilities that the emergency services, particularly the police, will need in the event of an emergency. So we would see that as a very important, a central role, supporting the authorities in, in, in tackling terrorism. And Moonshot is quite different. Mm. Well, where, where do you fit in? Though? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I feel like because we do um, you know, CVE, and there can be many arguments about what that actually is, um, but it's very much in the terrorism prevention rather than counterterrorism space. Um, we see this from a completely different perspective in terms of um, uh, provision of, of services and everything else. Um, so for, from my point of view, I think some of the most interesting work going on where the private sector intersects with um, CVE, terrorism prevention uh, work, uh, would be on the one hand, they're kind of large social media companies um, that... Um, um, are obviously uh, constantly in the firing line every time an attack takes place. Like, oh my God, was the internet involved? It's like, of course the internet was involved. It's involved in every date that people go on. It's involved in us finding this location, everything. Um, so there's there's that element of it that I think is something uh, definitely worth exploring. Uh, and the second is is uh, the, the emergence, I think, represented by, by us and a handful of other organizations out there. Um, of private sector companies set up specifically to do CVE counter extremism work, um, which is very, very different to kind of more traditional security solutions work, which kind of intersects more uh, kind of uh, neatly with uh, defense and, and other industries. Um, trying to, you know, mix essentially, um, you know, marketing with social work, with counter extremism, with counter terrorism learnings um, is a totally new space as far as we're aware mm -hmm. and uh, we're one of a handful of companies that are in that space and wouldn't never self-identify or describe as being counter terrorism, mm -hmm. much more on the kind of terrorism prevention CVE space. Yeah. And so you mentioned there about, there's debate about what exactly CVE is, but for our listeners who, who've never been introduced to, to CVE, countering violent extremism, what exa where do you see it? What do you see it as? Yeah, so it's it, it, it's quite a contentious debate. I mean, uh, CVE, countering violent extremism, um, is a term that is uh, bandied about a lot and uh, unfortunately um, gets a bit of a bad name because um, an awful lot of uh, individuals and organizations, for very understandable reasons, um, try and repurpose generic social programs as CVE. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, have a, if you have a sports program, well, of course this is CVE, because if the young people, inverted commas, anyone that says the young people, I immediately have <laughs> deep skepticism of. Uh, it's like, if the young people are doing this, then they're probably not going to become terrorists. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, well, that's not actually what it means. What it means to us is the space that exists after someone has started to engage with extremist material or movements, but before they have crossed the line into uh, something that would be you know, uh, active engagement with that movement. So they're engaging with the material, but not yet the movement. So we actually view it as a very, very narrow space and a space which is measurable. Um, so that's our definition of CVE is, is quite hard end um, just before someone crosses the line into potentially hurting someone. It's it's that idea space and essentially what, what the only thing that we've found that's effective is a form of glorified social work that is highly targeted mm -hmm. at individuals that are consuming this material, but have yet to actually engage. So do you have advantages, do you feel you have advantages being in the private sector rather than the public sector when you're looking at countering violent extremism? Yes, I mean essentially myself and Vidya spent a lot of time when we set up the organisation, Vidya Ramalingam is my co-founder, um, looking at different possible structures. We looked at a charity structure um, and looked at, the, the two big ones we looked at a charity or, or, or a private sector. Um, the issue with actually a charitable structure when you're engaging something that is 
by its nature high risk and by high risk in two in two different ways high risk in the sense that the kind of technological solutions we're trying to develop might fail mm -hmm. and high risk in that the audience we're engaging with are potentially dangerous individuals um, we felt that the reason we needed to set up moonshot is that people doing counter extremism work a weren't scientific enough but b were risk averse mm -hmm. and actually a charitable structure whereby the board is ultimately responsible for your mistakes um, couldn't work for us because we were then in the situation whereby we could be our own board and couldn't draw a salary or um, we could uh, set an organization up and then the other people sitting above us would be actually trying to discourage us from trying to do what we felt we needed to do so the the, the legal uh, con uh, construct that made the most sense for us was a private company um, not necessarily because of you know the, the the glories of the market although I am I am in favor of some of that uh, but much more to do with the fact that uh, you can control it much more tightly and you can take risks uh, on your own head and do you feel the same Hugo or do, like obviously you're at a different stage you're at the countering rather than the prevention uh, what why do you feel that the what where do you actually feel that your role intersects with the public sector? What way do you work together with the public sector? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, it's quite interesting because I think a lot of the debate, particularly around the con conceptual debate around mm. the private sector's role in counterterrorism broadly, uh, is there's an ongoing question around, you know, what is the legitimate role? What is the valid role? And I don't see it quite like that. I see it more as how do we structure the relationship that is necessary? And and the reason I say that is, is, is well, a couple of reasons. I mean, the state really depends on, for example, critical infrastructure mm -hmm. operators to protect themselves. That's unless you're going to adopt a, a radically different sort of system. And uh, who knows, with a, a future coloured government in this this country, we may head towards renationalisation of certain things. But under the current order, there is a level of dependency there um, that means that uh, the private sector is, is a crucial partner. And then secondly, I think particularly in the area of, of, of research and development, and perhaps there are some links here to, to the CVE work, is that actually um, given the relative decline of state resource going into that, mm -hmm. uh, particularly around technology development since the end of the Cold War really, um, you're finding that actually the knowledge, the expertise and the skills are actually in the private sector mm -hmm. and also the levels of investment. I was struck a few years ago when I heard um, a very senior member of, 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 of the defence research establishment stand up in front of a conference and said, um, the whole of the UK government now spends around £10 billion pounds, uh, annually on research and development across, across all aspects, healthcare, security, defence and so on. Microsoft, one company, invests £10 billion pounds annually on research and development. And therefore the, the lion's share of, of, of investment in research and development is actually in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And therefore to understand what solutions we need, there needs to be mechanisms of engagement between the authorities and there. So, so I see that as a, a crucial interdependency actually, uh, in terms of how it is that companies, particularly technology and solutions providers, uh, engage and, and interact with government. And do, are there core examples of uh, advances that would be made at the countering terrorism side as well as at the pre preventing uh, or the countering violent extremism side of successes from the private sector? What, are the, what would the core examples be? Well, I mean, the, there are so many different types of examples yeah. reflecting the diversity, but I know that there have been, for example, I mean, sometimes they get a, a, bad, a bad rep for some reason, but just the, the manned security guarding industry mm. in the UK, mm. of which there are more 
private security officers uh, than there are actually police officers. And of course, you know, perhaps not seen, unlike some other countries, as the most sort of um, high-profile career or one that people would necessarily want to want to pursue because of the, the level of wages and so on. But you've actually had a number of cases in the West End where private security officers have, have, something, have seen something untoward on the streets where the police haven't been and have actually flagged things up to the authorities. Now, now hopefully, um, that sort of dispels any idea around sort of in principle uh, sort of the character of that. But I, I use that example just to show it can actually be quite basic. Yeah. I mean, then you go into some of the most advanced uh, technology uh, systems that we're now having in very much the online space that Ross mentioned. You know, if, if one of the core t uh, challenges of our time now is to uh, mitigate the impact of online extremism, particularly how it is that government and law enforcement and others engage with the tech companies, we therefore need some quite sophisticated technologies, some of which are being developed in-house by those companies, but actually you find that a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises outside the Googles and the Facebooks of this world are developing some quite, quite advanced digital forensic capability heading into uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, this is moving way beyond the capacity, I think, of where the state is, and therefore that's why we do need the mechanisms of engagement that, uh, that I'd advocate. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, and that ties in very much with, with our, our findings as well. Even just the expertise that exists within the private sector is the expertise you need at the table. Mm -hmm. We're consistently stunned um, by the, the kind of... And listen, they, they have a lot of stuff on. I, I don't like to be one of these people that always beats up on government partners, mm. uh, but I'm constantly stunned by, by what you're talking, what, what they think is advanced versus what we see. So, mm. you know, as, as a company, um, we bring in kind of people that have spent their careers doing marketing in Burberry. And those people actually, by understanding audience segmentation very deeply, can actually do counter-extremism in a much more focused way than, than we've ever seen before, and certainly than any governments ever have. Um, and then likewise, I think you, you mentioned R&D. I mean, we often find that um, we're able to get support to develop technologies um, because of the way we're structured, because we're right. a private company, um, in a way that if had we been in a charity, it just wouldn't have happened. Because an awful lot of the off-the-shelf um, analytic solutions are not designed for our use case because our use case is so bizarre mm. is you, you try and pull some stuff off the shelf that's designed for defense doesn't quite work try and pull some stuff off the shelf that's designed for marketing doesn't quite work because no marketing company cares has an audience that is 40 people in in in, in uh, Birmingham we do and that's that's our entire messaging strategy to be focused on 40 people mm. and that's also the difference to my end uh, to my mind between good CV work and bad CV work you can rock into government right now no problem and show them a chart and say oh we reached um, you know 3,000 at-risk youth it's like well, what in God's name does at-risk yes. mean mm. um, so what you mean is you you showed this to some young Muslims that's that's what you're actually saying here um, and actually the expertise in the private sector when you pull in and say some of this marketing um, ability and then you pull in the ability to kind of put resources behind research and development means we're able to build tools that allow us to reach our audience with what is essentially highly specialized uh, marketing followed on with highly specialized social work but it's not James Bond stuff that's all it is it's marketing and social work just done in a very targeted and specific way and I don't believe it can be done uh, certainly inside government I, I don't even believe it could be done by charitable structures I think the only entity and business model that works is a kind of a startup um, technology focused model and so what kind of reaction do you get from government and from the public sector when you uh, when you're applying something like this like the um, marketing strategy 
base uh, with expertise from organisations like Burberry? Is there great support for it? Is there pushback in any time? It, it depends because you have an awful lot of people in house that are in, in, in government that are uh, very forward looking and, and, and get it. And you have other people that, um, you know, uh, are still blown away by the concept that the terrorists are in the computer. I don't know if you've seen Zoolander, but you know the <laughs> files are in the computer. Um, so it's the first uh, Zoolander uh, reference uh, of yeah, talking yeah. terrorists so far, <laughs> and hopefully not the last. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you spend a huge amount of time just educating people, and in a way that can be very useful because an, aw- an awful lot of the time the assumptions are just incorrect. They're like, well, you know, of course it's impossible to test uh, this kind of material among at-risk youth, so we're doing this, this, and this. this. It's like, hold up, that's actually not the case. It's like, we can take the material that you're producing, put it in front of people that are continually attempting to access terrorist material without them necessarily knowing that that's why they're receiving it, um, and see the engagement rates. And an awful lot of it is just going back in and and, uh, uh, taking their suppositions and just blowing them away. Usually, people react quite well to that if you can actually demonstrate it. And this is also part of what we do, is we take the money that we earn from the bits and pieces of contracts we do, and then we actually produce proof of concept. So what we used to do in old organizations is we'd, we'd go to government with hat in the hand and say, we have this great idea, please could you fund us? Mm-hmm. Whereas now we're going up and saying, um, here's the information we found in this city, here's something that we tried, here are the results. Um, do you want to actually help us scale this thing? Mm-hmm. And even that as a business model works much, much better, both for us, but also for progressing the sector and actually pushing forward new ideas, which otherwise would never get anywhere. And I suppose, Hugo, for you, you're at the more traditional end of, of where uh, the private sector would have been in the preventing or countering terrorism as, you, as your sector is. So would you have... Uh, would you have a lot stronger relationships at government levels built up uh, and and support there, or is it, is there still pushback? I th- I, th- I think there is still pushback. I agree with Ross that it's highly highly variable, and you might have some pockets of, of expertise that are very much uh, very much more progressive than other parts. And of course, we're talking about not just central government machinery in the form of the Home Office and uh, other parts of government, but also particularly law enforcement and, and intelligence agencies who will have sort of different approaches and, and different sort of relationships built up, frankly, with different parts of the private sector, in some cases built up over decades. I, I, I think there are, are some big challenges in, in this area in terms of making sure that the structures and, and mechanisms for engagement that we have on at the policy level are up to date. And um, I, I would say that really these in a more formal sense, really didn't come into fruition until after 7-7 in 2005. Uh, That's really when government sort of started to create the structures that it felt needed a much more pan-industry or security sector response in the way I've defined it earlier, and say, well, hang on, we do need this regular dialogue on things like R&D, but much more broadly. Mm. um, We've got, in in the eyes at the time, we've got a, a sort of a new inverted uh, commas challenge here, or at least in terms of volume and scale, and therefore we need some much more uh, sort of open and formalised structures with with, with the industry. Now, I I actually think that we've got a long way to go to actually build up uh, appropriate structures still. I Mm -hmm. think it's very encouraging what I'm I'm hearing, Ross. I I think it's absolutely trying to be nimble, because in contrast to let's think about the defence sector for a moment, where you've got sort of 5, 10, 15 year lag times around major programmes like aircraft carriers or whatever it may be. In security and particularly in counter-terrorism, we haven't got that time. I mean, we've got, we've got a matter of 
days, if not hours in some cases, where we've got to remove extremism content. And I think that does mean that you need a much more nimble mode of engagement, uh, structures where you can reach in, not only in the, the, the traditional, in inverted commas, sectors, but reaching out, as, as Ross has said, to, to other sectors where you could, you could draw in expertise. And to be quite, to be quite honest, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of how we ensure that you know, there's actually a, a mechanism and a structure around, around how you do that. And I don't know if this is your experience as well, but I feel like there's, there's a role here for organisations that are specialist to actually lead government as well, um, to, to, to identify allies internally and then provide them with the information that they need. So, for example, if, if, uh, you, you know, if someone says, well, no one's taking the threat of the far right seriously, then you work with that individual to provide them with the information they need um, to look at the seriousness of the threat. And, then it, so you, and it's not dissimilar actually to how you engage with large social media companies yeah. is trying to I think the role of small specialist organizations like ours is yes to do the work but also sometimes to do some of the strategic thinking and say okay I know you guys are trying to uh, commission me to do this and you guys are commissioning me to do this but really if you if you adjust your entire policy um, around some of these things um, then uh, we're all much more likely to uh, to actually get where we need to be, which is why it's very important for organizations that work on this stuff, not just to accept the contracts that come out of the pipeline, but to be doing proper thought leadership and encouraging some departments that have zero budget to actually fight for their budget, mm -hmm. and doing and but doing that by providing them with the information they need. So I feel like there's a kind of a, an enlightened self-interest that comes with self-investment in data gathering, in, in teaching, um, and in assisting people inside government that are trying to do good. And you can see that being successful, obviously, with the, the higher profile uh, companies but are you are we seeing success in that the leadership from these organizations uh, coming from these from smaller organizations like your own or is it is it still a, a way to go before there is that acceptance that there can be this leadership from from non-public organizations um so you mean from a government perspective yeah or, yeah. yeah i think i think increasingly it's it's it, we're, we're an odd situation as as, a, as our own organization because we've got a company that is young and two co-founders yeah. that are young but actually we, we get embraced because um, when we walk into the room we start talking about technology um, these kind of uh, grey-haired old guys that if I went in there to talk about tanks or anything yeah. else um, wouldn't give me the time of day but actually the type of organization that we are and the stuff we're talking about, they kind of look at us and say, oh, it's about the internet. Yeah, these kids probably know what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, so it's one of the few examples where I think uh, uh, the, the age profile of the company and the age profile even of the founders mm. um, assists. And you do get buy-in. You, mm. you get recognition from a lot of people internally that they don't know what's going on. And frankly, um, I'd much rather that than someone who's utterly convinced that they do know what's going yeah. on. That's a hell of a lot of it. That's a much harder problem. And within, like, a lot of our listenership uh, are from the academic community. Um, and traditionally, as you both know, uh, academic community looking at counter-terrorism or countering violent extremism has been based in international relations, sociology, psychology, etc. But from listening to both of you, your engagement with academia is coming from very different sectors as well. So what would... What way do you? What sectors do you really look at in relation to academia? What disciplines are are most influential for you? Obviously, you were talking about marketing there, Ross. But for for both of you, what would it be? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question. I mean, my first sub point on that would be that I think you know, thickening the relationship in a more 
formal way between private sector bodies and academia is absolutely on the agenda. But I'm again, I'm not entirely sure how far we've got there. Um, I think I think there are pockets of excellent collaboration, but it does feel like it's done quite often on a on a on a bilateral basis. I do know that within the Home Office currently, there's sort of efforts to pull that together more through their their new Joint Security and Resilience Centre, and I think that's really important to draw on all the aspects in answer to your question i think it is a, a multidisciplinary endeavor i think i think there's there's a, an important contribution there from the legal uh, legal sector within academia to say well hang on if you are um, if you are going to be developing this sensitive technology if you are going to be operating in this way perhaps uh, outsourcing a, a degree of, of, of policy uh, shaping influence um, then let us remember and I know this podcast has referred to him a few times you know Paul Wilkinson's uh, solid principles around operating within within the rule of law as we're countering terrorism. So I think that's very important, especially when it is that, you know, some of the capabilities that we might be developing within the private sector have the potential to be quite intrusive, uh, particularly online. Now, not being used in a, uh, an inappropriate manner, but I think, I think there is a role there for academia to make sure that uh, as that is being deployed by the authorities, that if we're going down that line of, of a coercive power of the state, as Oman would put it, that, that we are doing that within the rule of law under appropriate warrants and so on. So I think I think that's one I'd draw out. And, and secondly, personally, I've been very influenced um, with the school of IR. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear <laughs> on that, uh, having having met you originally in St. Andrews. But I think it is important because in that body of, of literature, you know, there are some pretty deep and profound questions around the role of the state and, and, and private sector mm. in security provision more broadly uh, at the level of international security as it were and I, I see that permeating national level as well politics and I think that that body of literature is important uh, as we think about countering terrorism in the UK or, or, or more broadly to think about and ensure that we are uh, we're, we're taking sensible judgments in terms of those functions and uh, roles and responsibilities that we might be looking to the private sector to do. Yeah so I mean I think the, the, I'm going to give you a little bit of a non-answer, which is uh, all of the above. Um, and actually, it's, there's a real practical example of this in terms of the teams that we hire. I mean, the people on the team include uh, data scientists, people that spent their time working on online mental health uh, provision, uh, one person who is in Metropolitan Police for 15 years, another, I already mentioned, someone who worked in uh, Burberry uh, doing marketing. And actually, if you think about, for us, what we do... Um, building a particular tool to identify an audience, um, then deploying some sort of a marketing, uh, I said, I'm using the word marketing deliberately to, mm. to simplify it because I think people dress this stuff up, deploying a targeted marketing campaign around those individuals and then trying to bring them into offline interventions. You actually need all of the above because you need people to be able to gather the information in the first instance. So you need your data scientists and our data scientists in particular is also has an anthropology degree. So it's, it's data scientist, developer, and an anthropologist all rolled into one person. Wow. So we're quite lucky to have that particular individual. <laughs> um, but you, you, need, you need that. You need the person to actually make sure that the message lands. You need to make sure that security is properly taken into consideration. You need to make sure that those interactions are based on best practice from uh, mental health provision and things we've seen elsewhere. So I think one of the things that's, that's crucial is to make sure that we're constantly drawing on different sectors. And frankly, 
it's one of the issues that I saw in CVE and, and counter-extremism um, you know, before CVE existed um, for a long time was that it relied much too much on a bunch of IR graduates. And again, I speak as an IR yeah. graduate, um, kind of coming out and, and opining, occasionally doing an interview and writing some stuff down, um, when actually people have been doing um, behavior change yeah. online and offline for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to draw on that. So that's the first piece of this. The second small piece I want to mention is I do think that it is important that we every now and then come back to the actual individuals and uh, thinkers that spend their time thinking about terrorism, thinking about our particular phenomenon, because you don't want to turn into a generalist. Uh, and I mean, John's paper on, uh, you know, pathways rather than profiles. John Morgan's. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, is is still hugely important. And we have, mm-hmm. actually end up giving it out to the team quite often when thinking about how you construct um, a campaign, how you identify these individuals, how you uh, work with them, because that conceptual framework is incredibly useful for us. Because once you start thinking about profiles and start thinking about pathways, then all of a sudden for us, we can start tinkering. It's okay, I can't, I'm not going to profile these people out, but I can see that the pathways that people move through, for example, nearly all of them, pretty much everyone, has engaged or attempted to access terrorist or extremist material. That insight means I don't need to know. I don't need to sit around and try and profile it. I need to instead target the pathways. And we do that in a very practical day-to-day level rather than intellectual. And the third point, so that was the, the second element. And the third really is just how far the sector has got to go. There is, there is a huge disconnect between the, 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 the expertise that's out there on terrorism and extremism and the organizations and individuals that claim to be doing counter-extremism, counter-terrorism work. It is stunning. I mean, I, have been, I was in a room recently, I won't say where because it might uh, narrow down where we were, and an individual stood up and said, oh, well, no one can ever understand extremism as much as the youth. It's like, what in God's name does that mean? Like, that, the majority of humanity falls into the category you've just said of the youth. There are people that have been studying this phenomenon for generations, for a very long time. Some really deep thinking has gone on. And, the, and there are programs that are built on that basis. It's like, oh, well, this came from the young people, so it can probably stop terrorism. And, and I mean, you, I shake your head, and, but this is where a huge amount of counter-extremism yeah. funding goes. And it drives me nuts because it then takes the whole term CVE and sullies it. It takes all counter-extremism and, uh, and sullies it because they're completely divorced from the actual work that's being done to study and understand this phenomenon. So I, I feel like that bridge needs to be made more and more. And even in the organization, um, we've just last week set a challenge for everyone to read at least one academic article a week so that you're actually engaging with this stuff. Mm-hmm. I have lots of criticisms of how academics approach this. I have criticisms of, 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 of the way that they engage, especially with our work. Mm-hmm. But divorcing yourself from it is frankly dangerous. And it's what I would say, 80% of what masquerades as CVE is. This is, I mean, I, I think it's good to get it out. I think it's good to get it out. I just think that there is a problem of communication of, of the value of the research that Ross has just mentioned and, and, and the field more broadly outside of CVE with, with the public policy community. I, I think we've discussed this actually at previous conferences at the Society for Terrorism Research. And mm. I think, I think, from my perspective, it's quite interesting because I, as I've mentioned, I work with sort of hundreds of, of security companies, um, and to a certain extent, sort of act as the interlocutor between them and government on certain requirements. 
And, and I find that there's a, a great will, a willingness to actually come together for those organisations and collaborate in that discussion. Now, we may or may not get to the right answer, but at least if you sort of get people around the table and, and, and share the ideas, I think that's, that's a very good place to start uh, with the different expertise mm. from the private sector. I think academia struggles more with that. I would say, actually, it, it's quite a, it, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but my experience of it, having spent time in academia as well in the security space, is that actually there's fewer, there's fewer fora for academics to actually collaborate. Yes, we, we get together at conferences uh, on an annual basis, but then everybody goes and we'll, we'll see you again next year. Th th there's not a sort of formalised process through which we can do that. Um, you know, it sometimes comes together in consortiums from funding models on a very specific issue, but I'm talking in a more strategic way in terms of how the academic community can, can come to bear and promote the influence. And I've, I fear that without that structure, um, we're going to struggle to get the message across. We're going to struggle to get what Ross has just said, which I fully support, which is bringing that real expertise into shaping the public policy. Because don't forget that, in the UK at least, the constrained resources on the part of government and law enforcement means that they've actually got less resource now to go and engage with the individual academic institutions. So, so there, I think, is a bit of a challenge for us within academia, if I may sort of be so bold, mm. to say, well... Okay, we're, we're going to make it e easy for you, and this is how we're going to do it. I, I think that there's also a small point is that, is that we need to figure out how we, uh, organizations like ours are, are sitting on reams of data mm. um, that um, we, we analyze for, 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 for the purpose of our own work, and we try and push out there every now and then. Um, but I do think that there's a bit of a gap that exists the other direction. I feel like the sector could actually, as in the terrorism research sector, um, could be um, uh, certainly as helped um, with greater access to the information mm -hmm. that we have, and even building some of the theories more closely into mm -hmm. what we do and testing some of this stuff. Like what we do is we run probably five different tests a week, um, each of which probably gives out enough information that you could put out a peer-reviewed article on it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there's, there's a, there is a bit of a disconnect, which I think we need to figure out um, both from a private sector perspective and from a terrorism research perspective about how we bridge that gap and how we make sure that once the gap is bridged, it doesn't sit behind paywalls mm. um, and come out in journals in two years' time. Mm. Uh, so there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there, there are a range of problems here, some of which come from us and some of which mm. come from, from, from the kind of terrorism research sector. Yeah, so, so like when Satan was talking about their part of the stagnation of terrorism research being lack of access to intelligence data, you're saying it's not just lack of access to intelligence data, it's not integrating, not engaging with private sector data yeah. as well. Yeah, and the, the sample sizes you're talking about, I mean, when I, I, and I, I engage with this stuff as much as I can, yeah. but, but still as a, a mere master's student, I know sitting as, as someone who only has a master's sitting with two PhDs, <laughs> and I'm of course, you know, uh, t terrified to open my mouth on this, but, uh, but when I look at the sample sizes that are often analysed uh, versus the kind of stuff that we're looking at, um, we're we're I'm much much more confident in the conclusions that we reach and um, on the basis of the data that we're drawing from than I am a lot of the time with the with the assumptions that are made in various papers or whatever else put out by either academics or um, or, or think tanks and we need to figure out a way to bridge that gap. Yes, no. yes there is this the danger on the part of government we see it a lot and I think Ross alluded to it in his his, his day to day earlier is that government and the metrics are just so important in this area if you're looking for a if we, if, if we believe in earnest that you know we believe in a 
you know, a, a solid data set under underpinning our, our policy. Well, look, I think we all know that's not always happens in practice, but we should be striving for it, let's say. Um, and therefore, um, I mean, we've spoken a bit about the tech companies and, 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 and the high profile and highly politicized debates going on around mm. us as we speak in terms of, you know, the alleged need to do more on the part of those companies to root out uh, to root out online extremism, you know, almost almost as a as a as a reason for this extremism happening happening in the first place mm -hmm. in certain cases, which I think is slightly worrying. But if you actually look at the way in which that we, we're posturing ourselves to to create that that public private engagement with the tech companies, notwithstanding the fact that many of the providers are in the in the United States, so we have senior politicians crossing the Atlantic to, to, to try to influence this, is it seems to be very much a sort of numbers numbers game mentality, which is around, okay, so, so you, Facebook, Google, and not to mention all the hundreds of smaller platforms, mm. um, you, you need to do more. Wh what are you going to do? And then the answer is that, well, we're going to appoint 7,500 people to monitor it online. I mean, is that the end of the story? I mean, I, I would suggest that there's a whole host of questions we should be asking ourselves in terms of how we are actually positing that. I mean, the first one is, and I don't have a particular problem, but I at least think we should ask the question, is are we comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with mm. a tech media company having 7,500 or 10,000 people monitoring content and then making a judgment in the absence of clearer definitions elsewhere taking things down? I mean, I think we've got to at least ask ourselves. And then secondly, if we are going to then ask ask the companies to do that. How are we going to measure the success for that? Yeah. And I think so many of these public-private partnerships that we see, not just in security, but I, I particularly focus there, is across the divide, across the partners, we don't ask ourselves enough about what our respective outcomes are in that. And I think, therefore, that has to be part of the solution, creating sort of fora through which we can actually debate honestly and openly, notwithstanding the, the you know, politicised environment, that this is what we're trying to get out of it. These are the constraints to achieving that, and, 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 and this is the way in which we're going to do it and measure it, because absent that, I just do wonder that around how helpful this numbers game sort of metric is that seems to underpin so many of the partnerships that we, we seem to have in this space. Yeah, and I, I think when you touch on the, the tech companies there, there's something that, that is far too often, I think, missing from this debate is there's, there's two elements. The first is understanding um, the difference between Facebook's legitimate interest in keeping their platform uh, clean and our wider interests. So the example we often use is if someone is posting pro-ISIS stuff and there's a 15-year-old posting pro-ISIS material on Facebook in London, Facebook delete that account. Facebook no, have, no longer have a problem we still have a problem. Society mm. still has a problem. That is something that yeah. we need to deal with. So that's the first point, yes. is very often with this pressure yeah. to get them to clean up their platforms, we lose sight of that fact. And the second is we also far too often lose sight of the fact that yes, these tools are used as extremists are always early adopter of any communication mechanism from the printing press through to the modern era. Um, these things are being used by extremists to reach and change the behavior of vulnerable people. However, 
these tools can also be used to identify those people, to reach those people, and to get them support and help. Okay. And far too often that's missing. When we talk about the private sector and you know the, the debates around private sector and, and CV and uh, terrorism prevention more broadly, tend to be almost entirely focused on takedowns and a negative yeah. perception, yeah. rather than saying, okay, these are tools that can affect behavior change. Extremists have stolen a march on us and have used these effectively. How are we going to yes. repurpose these yeah. tools in order to actually make recruitment harder? And that's what we try and do day in day out but it's something that I just find lacking from the debate almost entirely yes. and as you say I mean in I terms agree. of counting well we, we've taken down this many accounts and it's like okay what actual effect did that have mm -hmm. uh, whereas what it does allow us to do now is you can measure um, I'm not going to say behavior change so much as I mean online behavior change yes you can actually analyze look at an individual's profile and see the number of times they're engaging with or accessing or pushing out extremist material pre and post intervention and actually start to measure qua um, quantitatively um, whether or not your programs are having an impact but there's a lot of the time a huge resistance to that because many of these programs were designed not to be measured at all ever uh, yeah. and they don't like the idea you can't like, well you can't really measure this stuff it's like it's, it's just bullshit it's not true mm -hmm. um, people measure behavior change all the time and very often the same politician will stand up and say oh my god these these girls they they they, they were they were tweeting and then they turned up on the Syrian border and you say absolutely okay so that's behavior change online and you talk about behavior change online it's like I don't really believe you can change people's behavior online it's like it's it's a direct yeah. contradiction either you can or you can't and if you can let's figure out how we repurpose that and use it for our benefit oh like we're we're coming to to the close of, of, the, of the episode here but like we've touched on it a bit and touched on it a bit there in, in your recent answer there Ross but what do you see for both of you for your own organizations as well as the private sector uh, as a whole, where do you see the, the major future challenges being? And also, with going back to, so you've got everyone in your organization is reading an academic paper a week, and so you're constantly engaged with academia. And I, I know this for both of you that you're constantly engaged with academia. What are the type of research questions that you're not seeing covered, that you're not seeing Asked that you feel need to be asked that we could make real uh, yeah. inroads in that could help uh, in from both the countering terrorism point of view as well as countering violent extremism. I think I mean I have a have a go at the first one. I mean the major challenges um, to me, as I mentioned right straight off the bat, is a question of how we actually achieve this, how we generate better uh, structures and and and. and and operational engagement between the public and the private sectors. And, and to me, in the context of um, the threat that we've seen over the past 12 months and the manifestation of the threat, particularly in London, but also across the country, is whilst, you know, I think we do need to continually look to, to experts to inform sort of the extent to which that threat is, is changing or not, you know, personally, I am quite persuaded that the the, the volume of, of of attacks that we've seen has has increased substantially. You know, and therefore, you see the Counterterrorism Command and other senior Home Office officials talking about a, a step change is required in public-private cooperation. So, I think I see that as a major, imminent challenge. And insofar as as cooperation is concerned, I touched on it earlier, but to me. How can the government or, the, or, or, or some sort of neutral interlocutor perhaps flowing from this conversation ensure that the conversation we're having in terms of 
developing capability to mitigate that all the way through from prevention all the way through to unfortunately if something does happen to me there's a huge ongoing challenge of connecting the operational end users such as you know power stations or, or transport hubs or, or energy companies these are all in private private hands they're privately operated companies with um, you know startups or, or other security solutions suppliers because to me there's there's very little interaction there mm -hmm. in terms of formalized structure you it is very um, diverse and disaggregated so it happens but it's not happening in a sort of strategic way and I think there are aspirations and pockets of the Home Office for what it's worth to take that forward but I think in terms of the debate moving forward and finally your second question on that John I mean in terms of what 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 is the key research question you see I suppose I probably do see it in policy terms on that front, you know, we need some excellent thinking and I hope very much that, that, that the research community will continue to engage in, but at a, at a increasing volume to address, you know, what are, what is the correct way to, to structure this cooperation? Mm. Um, we've seen historically a, a, a proliferation of, of literature in around uh, how it is that private military and security companies operating in Iraq and Afghanistan within the field of IR. I mean, reams of, of works and journal papers, all of which are, are actually relevant and applicable in some senses. But in the in the field of counterterrorism, it, it's very minimal. So I would suggest that it's a very sort of open landscape if people are interested in sort of looking at how it is that the state in all its entities can actually set itself up to 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 reform itself to actually create more more nimble structures and i see that as a very important research question yeah. i mean in terms of the major challenges from a, a cve perspective um i think that the, the there's two interlocking ones um the first is uh, the whole sector needs to professionalize itself. Um, it needs to it needs to start holding itself to account in the same way that if they expect support for anything, um, they need to be engaging with the issues in a way that they're just not. And this, that that hopefully will lead to the second one, which sounds sounds quite negative, which is essentially driving out the charlatans. Um, the entire sector is filled with some that are deliberately charlatans, some that are just well-meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's damaging for the sector and it's damaging for the work and ultimately damaging for them too. Because while it might be great to build out programs that are sports programs for youth or mm -hmm. apps for refugees, all of these things are good. But unless you can draw me the link between those two, um, then you're not you know, you, you're not, that doesn't, you're, it's not counter-extremism unless you can draw that link. And saying that it is, is actually damaging for a sector that I genuinely believe in, but also damaging for the stuff you're looking at because you're then securitizing all interactions with youth, all interactions with refugees. Um, and it sounds lovely. You stand up on stage and say, oh, well, we're going to make an app for refugees. Sounds great. Uh, and no one wants to be the one in the room that sticks up their hand and say, this is lovely, but that's not for us. Not only should it not be for us because you're funneling money away from actual targeted CVE work, but it's, it's potentially deeply harmful. And right now, there's so few people in this space, I think we're all being a little bit too polite to each other. Mm. And we're all kind of sitting around nodding. It's like, okay, well, at least they're doing something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's our challenge. We've got to professionalize it and drive out some of the charlatans. And then in terms of academic, uh, academia, uh, I, I don't know if it's a research question so much as a way of working. Mm. Um, I think that the, the yeah. I alluded to this earlier, the insights that we get from journal articles or whatever, A, which are behind paywalls, most organizations won't pay for that, um, and uh, B, there's the time lag, just means that um, 
it's very difficult for us to draw actionable insights from that, mm. um, which is an issue because the team here are producing analysis and pushing it out month by month by month to government clients or whatever else. Um, and uh, the, 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 the pace that we're working at is just completely different. And that's not to say it's better. In fact, a lot of the time it's worse because it's not grounded in a deep understanding of the work that's been done previously. So I feel like we need to come up with a new working model of how academics uh, studying terrorism um, engage with organizations like ours and yours and others um, to almost figure out a way to embed this within the organization. Have uh, I don't know how you, how you do it, yeah. but I think some sort of embedding system so that we're drawing some of those links will work. Because the way acad academia currently works, that just won't fly. And likewise, the, the way our sector is incentivized to hoard data doesn't work either. So I think it's, it's, it's not about a research question so much as a, a different way of working. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we actually developed this podcast series was to be able to like to move the the impact of research outside of these paywalls and to be able to have a quick easy way of interacting with the research that is out there by some of the leading researchers and allow people to understand okay these are the the core questions that are being dealt with by a select a very select sample of, of experts in this area where can they uh, where can this be influenced but Hugo, Ross, thank you so much for, uh, for being here today on, on podcast. As always, if you want to find out more about the Talking Terror uh, web, uh, podcast series, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. Tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror and go to the website uel.ac.uk slash uh, T E 